Incremental improvement is no longer sufficient in helping organizations navigate the complexity, uncertainty and volatility of today's world. Our guest today explores how to create non-linear, dramatic change in organizations. He explores the emerging science of change that teaches us about how to build organizations from businesses to governments that change and adapt rapidly. He is author of 21 books, 12 of which have been bestsellers and 13 of which have been honored on lists of best business books or management books of the year. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of Change, How Organizations Achieve Hard-to-Imagine Results in Uncertain and Volatile Times. He is a legend in the field of change. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the Innovation Show, John Cotter. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Am I blushing? It's so great to have you, man. I was telling you before we started our interview that I mentioned to the Innovation Show audience through the newsletter that you were coming on the show. And I have a copy of the book behind me here up for grabs. And I've had an unprecedented amount of entrance for the competition this week. And I have a little bit of a cutter shrine behind me. I have a lot of the books on on uh, e-copy. Unfortunately, otherwise, I'd have them everywhere behind me because 21 books is an amazing achievement. I thought maybe we just break the news. You've had some amazing news. And I'm so grateful that you've honored our engagement of this interview in the midst of this amazing news that you've had. Just let's tell our audience about this change is in the cutter household. Oh, yes. At 2.30 approximately this morning, my daughter had her first child and I had my first grandchild, six pounds, nine ounces, a healthy baby boy, mother and child and hubby all look terrific. It's fantastic news and congratulations. First grandchild as well for you, John. I, I was uh, I was going to say to you, I, I have a subtle little thing that I do for every show. I wear a little pin that is a, a subtle kind of nod to what the show was about. But this one is as subtle as a bag of sledgehammers falling on your head from heaven. It says adapt or die. <laughs> and I thought it was the, the ideal pin to wear for our episode together. I was thinking about John how to start the show. And I, I often think about how the, the great I love when a super hero movie goes into the origin story of how the superhero became the superhero. And now that I have you, and it's such a great honor to have you, I'd love to hear the John Cotter origin story, how you got to where you are today, 21 books, amazing academic career, amazing career in the field, you've seen so much change in the field of change. I'd love if you gave a little bit of a background of how you got to where you are today. Let's start, let's don't go back to age zero. but. <laughs> <laughs> Very influential in, in my background story was my doctoral thesis, which I did at Harvard after I attended MIT for uh, a bachelor's and a master's in science. And I studied big city mayors who were in office in the late 1960s, which was a very tumultuous and difficult period in the United States for cities. And ultimately, we studied 20 up close uh, after they were out of office, so you didn't have to deal with politics. Um, and uh, the most striking finding, which I think had the most influence on me and subsequent events in my own career, is if you looked at the performance of the best three mayors on all kinds of indices, experts' ratings, uh, the economy in their cities uh, while they were in office, whether they had uh, uh, disruptive disturbances that really hurt people, uh, social welfare going up or down or whatever. Uh, the distance between the best three and the worst three, the highest performers and the lowest performers, was not large. It was galactic. It was huge. And once you started thinking about that, if uh, the average player, much less the, the three at the bottom, could be moved just a little bit toward those high-end uh, performances, it would have made a huge difference in the lives of millions and millions of people, uh, tens of thousands of businesses, um, 
the school systems for kids. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And I think I walked away from that more than ever interested in how in the world can we help organizations, public and private, uh, make non-incremental, make some significant jumps in how well they're doing. And that, in turn, took me ultimately to the topic of leadership, because the three mayors and the following people that I studied in business uh, at the top uh, were all called leaders by the people who knew them best. And they were. Um, and people at the bottom were not. And it wasn't they were the best managers. They were better managers than the people at the bottom. But where they were stellar was leadership. It's, it's the actually working with people to come up with some kind of a vision for where the city ought to go and, and, and talking about it and communicating it enough to get people to buy into it and creating conditions that would actually energize and mobilize people to make things happen. So it wasn't a, a mayor by himself kind of micromanaging or just managing a bureaucracy. They had uh, hundreds of thousands of people in their cities, if you will, working on a similar agenda and making a difference. Um, and then leadership took me to change because I asked, okay, what fundamentally are these leaders doing? And they were ha helping their businesses or their cities or their governments or whatever adapt to a changing world. And the first study that we did on that was fascinating, which is we asked ourselves, there's an expression I've heard since I was young, the only thing that doesn't change is change. The implication being that change has always been with us and it's always been kind of at the same level. Well, we measured that and we said, no, change is going like this. <laughs> the number of strategic initiatives that you find in businesses that require significant change, not just a, a little uh, adjustment here or there, we're going up and up and up. And that is what we've been focusing on ever since, because that trend takes us right through to today. You're seeing more changes, faster changes, more volatile changes, more disruptive changes now than 10 years ago, a lot more than 20 years ago. And um, it makes all the difference in the world in how well organizations perform how well they can adjust to that, adapt to that, get ahead of that, take, take advantage of that. And, and ultimately, uh, when they do, it can, like in the case of my mayors, have a real impact on lots of our fellow human beings. And it's very exciting to study that and to help you. Innovation always happens at the intersections. And I love that because you used the term diversity and diversity of thinking in the people that you've studied. And I, I always think about you, for example, in your background, you did that work on mayors, you went on and you worked in academia, but then you added a new intersection. You're like a living Venn diagram, the middle of the Venn diagram, where you put it into practice. And now it's culminated with your organization, Cotter Inc., and that's where this latest manuscript sprung from, because in Cotter Inc., you did a study, and that was deeply understanding the changes in brain science, which has changed dramatically in the last two decades. I'd love if we shared this as well, because this was a real turning point in this book, I suppose, that really gave it a different flavor and a different lens. Exactly. Twelve years ago, we decided, uh, when all my colleagues were retiring, that we'd start a business <laughs> to try to uh, uh, take what we had learned over the decades and we, what we continued to learn and uh, produce the best advisory service in the world on it. As a part of that, we decided from the beginning that we, we were going to actually do research in the business. Consulting firms 
say they do research, but it's really marketing. Um, and I don't, that sounds snippy, snarky. And so I apologize, but that is true. Most consulting firms, when they write, it's a marketing thing. Um, and we decided, no, you know, we know a lot about research. So five years ago, four years ago, one of my colleagues walks into our whiteboard room in our Cambridge office here in, uh, in Boston and said, uh, John, I had this fascinating experience last week. I said, really, Russell, tell me about it. And he said, I was giving a speech to a bunch of executives at, I think it was City Court, but I'm not positive. And he says, in it, I dropped in some of the things I was reading about brain science and about what we're learning these days about the brain. And he said, um, maybe only seven, eight, nine, ten minutes, an hour, an hour and a half speech. And he said, uh, when I talked about that, people literally, you could see them paying more attention to what I was saying. They were leaning forward more. And um, I said, well, that's, that is interesting. So tell me uh, what you were reading. That led to us putting together a group of five people, um, four of whom were in the Boston office. One had to be brought in virtually. Uh, and we decided to look over what the brain science people were doing and had done over the last 20 years or so. And with a particular eye toward what does it, does this tell us anything really, really, really important about what we care about, which is improving organizational performance and helping companies change in, in even transformational ways uh, to adapt and take advantage of opportunities. And we concluded, yes, okay they really are beginning to find some things. And we devised our own model, which I then ran by all the brain science people saying, have I got this right? Um, which uh, starts with the fact that uh, human beings, much more than we normally think of, have a kind of a central system built into us that was probably first uh, developed uh, 100,000, 200,000 years ago, that's primary function is all about one thing and one thing only, and it's survival. And it's an enormously powerful system, and it affects us in ways that we, do, we don't notice. I mean, it's not like my brain is saying, oh, the survive system is being activated now. It just happens. It's like you've got a radar that's looking for threats, and when the radar sees a threat, chemicals go out, uh, blood increases to muscles. We go into a fight or flight, you know, type of thing where um, our mind focuses like a laser on the threat. And when it all works well, we take an action like that with huge energy, eliminate the threat, and then calm down. Um, as it turns out, that mechanism, which was designed basically for physical threats. You know, the tiger comes along, I see tiger, boom, it goes into action, and I'm 40 feet up a tree 100,000 years ago. That same system now is reacting to threats to perceived threats to our companies, our careers, our egos, our self-image, our... Uh, paycheck, all sorts of things. And in an increasingly changing world, which throws up uncertainties, which are seen as threats, we've got a lot of people that are being thrown into this kind of overheated survive mode. And when that happens, uh, they don't necessarily tap into that part of them. And they've got another part that can help with change, can help with leadership. Um, if anything, it shuts it down. Uh, and so that's a big 
big understanding. The second was understanding the second piece, which is certainly a lot weaker uh, and newer, but it's enormously important. It helps us thrive, not just survive. It's got an, a radar that looks for opportunities. Um, when it sees them, it, it sends out chemicals too that create a sense of excitement, you know, some passion. Um, and we tend to want to act to take advantage of the opportunity. And as long as we see evidence, or the mind rather, sees evidence that we're actually getting some results and hence this isn't a fool's errand, that energy can stay up for a long time. Um, and that is the system that leaders tap into in themselves and others. That is the system that can make transformations. Um, and that is a system which is underactivated in the typical organization. And it makes all the difference in the world when you're talking about performance in a rapidly changing uh, world. I wanted to zoom in, John, on a certain scenario that you mentioned in the book. And I'll, I'll quote a little paragraph that I love. You say, the executive committee of a financially challenged firm did what they had always seen done before. They launched a restructuring. When word got out that layoffs were coming, not just individuals, but whole parts of the enterprise began moving into overheated survive mode. Anxiety, anger and stress went up, morale went down, productivity slipped, innovation was overwhelmed by all this survive exhaustion, along with its narrowly threat-focused minds. And this is often the context into which organizations hire heads of innovation or heads of change. They have these massive restructurings, they bring people in, and this is the context in, into which they're welcomed, and they don't really stand a chance. I'd love if you unpack this for us, John. This is a problem that is much worse today than it was five or 10 years ago, because innovation becomes increasingly an important part of the changes uh, that, that what makes change and directs change in organizations. Um, and the scenario, well, one of the stories we tell in the book that is uh, the Kraft Heinz uh, uh, story, which is interesting to me because it can't be written off as a bunch of dummies doing dumb things because uh, Warren Buffett was involved. And Warren is as, as smart as anybody you're going to find anywhere. And his track record shows that. Um, but they managed Warren. And Berkshire Hathaway, I think, lost $22 billion or something like that. It's, it's slowly gaining uh, some back. Uh, uh, because Kraft Heinz, when they were put together, went into a restructuring that sounded very much like the scenario you just gave. And it, uh, it sent uh, everybody into deep survive. Uh, and when people are in that, they, what they, they needed is in a changing consumer food marketplace. They needed innovation. That's where the growth was coming from. It wasn't coming from selling more ketchup. It was coming from more healthy foods and more uh, international blends of foods um, and innovation. And they tried. I'm sure they had people who were assigned to be the, the uh, product innovators uh, those guys made almost no progress because everybody was so hunkered down, kind of uh, defending their little foxhole, if you will, in this panicked mode. Um, and as a result, they couldn't execute much of anything, much less innovate anything. Uh, some small competitors in particular did, took away market share, uh, they cut out a lot of costs, uh, which made things, even, put people even more into a survive mode. 
And you end up with two great old companies, a very, very capable, astonishing man in the background trying to help make this work and total failure um, because uh, nobody really appreciated the human nature elements that were being sent in the wrong direction and that would inevitably be a barrier to the type of innovation that the new emerged firms needed. And there's a piece of that story that you can find in lots of places these days. Maybe not as dramatic, maybe not as big, but it's the same storyline. The whole second part of the book for our audience, those of you who don't win the copy, get it and get their copy because John goes through lots of different scenarios of change. I'll just give you an example because we're not going to get through them all. There's accelerating strategy execution, there's digital transformation, there's restructuring, there's M&A, there's revitalization of culture, there's creating sustainability and change and social change. But just because you mentioned uh, Kraft Heinz, John, I'm going to jump ahead to something that you mentioned in M&A, because this really jumped out at me. You said managerial mindsets, metrics and analytics dominate in these scenarios of mergers and acquisitions to speed up what can take a long time and to keep people from worrying. Organizations want to fight decision making. They want to fight too much thinking by the people because they don't want them involved too much. But this leads to major problems down the line. People start to worry, they start to create their own stories. And you tell us that the constant communication from leadership throughout the organization becomes extra vital in these instances. Absolutely. And the M&A track record uh, for the people who have, the finance people who've really studied that, of course, is not a good track record. Uh, the number of major uh, uh, mergers or acquisi big acquisitions that have paid back according to the storyline that was given to investors at the time of the merger or acquisition um, is much less than people would uh, suspect by just reading the newspapers. And the problems are similar um, across industries, and they have to do with the fact that uh, number one, all too often mergers are done in a way that send people into overheated survive. And number two, all too often the single biggest challenge isn't on the agenda or is low on the priority list of the people driving the uh, merger integration. And that is the real integration of two human organizations, the real integration of a culture. Um, and that requires, uh, again, uh, tons of communication. It requires some vision of what this new culture is all about. And a lot of action, not just words, that are demonstrating that there is a real benefit to putting these two pieces together. Um, I had the opportunity a few months ago to bump into uh, an unusual example of a uh, merger situation, which is the now the sixth largest bank in the United States. It's called Trust. Most people don't know the name yet because they're, it's a new name. Um, uh, in the Southeast. And uh, the people who drove this from the board, the CEO, the uh, COO, uh, from the beginning, instead of treating it as a check the box exercise of uh, putting together the new hierarchy and, and um, eliminating some personnel and making sure the IT systems uh, You've got somebody in charge of uh, that. They began the whole process by, among other things, uh, putting together a new board that included everybody from both the other boards, which nobody ever does, 
And by talking endlessly, this was going to be a real merger of equals where they drew upon the strengths of both to create something truly outstanding. And from the beginning, they talked about purpose, talk about something that's not analytical and <laughs> numbers driven in finance. Purpose, purpose, purpose uh, uh, from the start. And two months into this, they got hit with COVID, which could easily have crashed and, uh, the, whole, the whole thing uh, because face-to-face uh, -face communication um, becomes more difficult, if not impossible. And uh, yet with this mindset of the psychology behind it all, uh, is as important as the economics that we really do have to win over the hearts and minds of both sets of people and create a new team that thinking in terms of what is the purpose of all of this. And by the way, the purpose is not maximizing how much profit we can make in the short term to pay off a few investors. It's broader than that. Uh, and in communicating a lot, CEO holding uh, regular kind of leadership sessions uh, in which among other things, one of which uh, uh, I was the invited guest to talk about the new book um, uh, of which he incredibly bought almost 28,000 copies. Nice, John. <laughs> That's Which, nice. You got to give me his number, man. <laughs> he gave the book to more than half of his employees. Number of execs I know who would ever even think about that, no matter the book. I mean, why, why would you do that? But what he's signaling is these people are all important. And they all need, we all need to be talking about the same messages. That's how we create a new um, single entity that is uh, a new single culture and something that is stronger than the um, two pieces that we put together in a merger. One of the things that dawned on me as I read the book was the tension of opposites or duality that exists and old and new chaos and order survive and thrive throughout the book. And this emerges again with mergers and acquisitions because I thought about here the visual image I created was you know if you have a dominant color mixed with another color it dominates and this happens sometimes in organizations and say for example it's an acquisition of a startup oftentimes the existing hierarchical organization dominates and takes over the culture when that's not necessarily the right thing. And you talk here about survive and thrive are both necessary. Oh, absolutely. You want survive working the way it was designed to deal with short-term problems and threats and thrive to carry you into a innovative, powerful um, future. The, the problem you were referring to, which is big companies buying small, innovative companies. I, I, I remember when I first saw that decades ago, and it was just, it blew my mind. Big company buys this uh, very, very innovative uh, at a smaller company, younger company for a high multiple and basically brings it in and says, guys, we're so glad to have you here. Kill them all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's mind boggling. And what it was is the, uh, the, the mothership, the bigger old piece, um, did nothing to uh, worry about turnover in the new young organization who looked at the big old uh, new mothership and said, this is a bureaucratic, uninnovative nightmare. So you get good people fleeing you know, as fast as they can get out the doors. 
Um, and they literally punished others because they wouldn't adopt their, their policies. Uh, and the number of times that I've seen this happen over the years is, I mean, the social and economic cost of that is preposterous. Um, and it, it's not necessary. It is possible to take something that is older and more formal and bureaucratic and something that is younger and more innovative and looser and integrate them in, together in a way that um, makes them both uh, stronger, gives one scale and gives the other innovation. But that is not the norm today at all. Part two, you go through all these different areas of change. One of them is strategic execution itself. And you give a brief history here of execution, but also the changes that are needed in strategy execution. There's a quote here that I couldn't resist sharing. It goes as follows. Strategic planning is very much a management-centric activity, not a leadership-centric activity. Thus, it is built on processes designed prim primarily for reliability and efficiency. As the science of change would predict, it is therefore increasingly incapable of inducing sufficient speed, agility, smart adaptation and real results that more and more people and institutions need. That absolutely nails the concept here. I'd love if you would expand on this. I can still remember driving back with my wife uh, from our place up in New Hampshire on a lake a few years ago and having a telephone conversation through the car system uh, with a guy who worked for a huge bank, not in the United States, but outside the United States. And he has read something that I've recently written and is just going on, in the, and he's in the strategy group. And he's going on and on about it's insane the way we do strategy. He says, we put together, we spend thousands of man hours putting together these big, thick documents that are called five-year strategic plans. He says, increasingly, we can't make predictions with any certainty that go one year out. Five-year is a total fantasy. Uh, and the work of writing all of this down is, is taking a valuable management time as well as staff time like people like me. And yet we're caught in this, this is the way we've always done it and we can't break out of it uh, cycle and it's going to kill us. And without naming the bank, which I'm not going to do, uh, it didn't kill them, but it came close. It came close. Um, strategic planning, remember, uh, goes back to the 60s or 70s. And the 60s and 70s were a much slower moving, less volatile world in which innovation was much less needed in most industries than today. The, the difference in 50 or 60 years is huge. Um, so it grew up in an environment that was more predictable, less changing, et cetera, in which you could. It was kind of useful to force people to think ahead and not just about this quarter. Um, and the primary managerial function in businesses was management anyway. Most people, that's their job, it's not leadership. Um, management is something that was not invented um, two millennia ago. It was invented after the Civil War in the United States. The first business school didn't exist until the 1880s, anywhere on earth, okay? First university goes back to about 1050. Um, and it existed after uh, the Civil War in the United States because the Industrial Revolution was producing these larger entities. Remember, 
it's not that long ago that the average business was employed, had, had a total employment of about five people. It was the family farm. And if it wasn't that, it was a shop. And it was mostly family members who one hired something with a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand. They didn't exist. This is a new phenomenon. And when they first came into being because of the Industrial Revolution, um, the problem was how in the world do we have all these people and now have chaos? How can we produce efficiently some product and, and when we promise it to a customer, actually deliver it? So reliability and efficiency was the name of the game and management was invented uh, as a process of planning and budgeting and organizing and staffing and metrics for control and problem solving. Um, and it's enormously important today, obviously still, but it's not the process that helps us innovate, that helps us adapt, that helps us change quickly and take advantage of opportunities. Um, and that is a problem in most firms in the strategy process right now today. And it's got to change. I do a lot of work with organizations on visioning or their strategy, et cetera. And there's always huge resistance to including more people because it complicates things. And it does. It, it slows it down. Absolutely. But Really, what all you're doing is kicking the can down the road. It's not going to stick because people don't buy into something they didn't create. They weren't involved in it. They weren't consulted. And you give the great example here of Agile. Say, for example, it's a website. And in the old world, you used to get a, a web developer to go off and then come back to the marketing team and go, ta-da. And they go, oh, that's not what we wanted. But now agile development suggests you have all those people in the room. And strategy or vision is exactly the same thing. There's a tendency for, still in the strategy process, for the executive committee and a small staff group, a very small number of people, to develop it and then, quote, communicate it down the hierarchy, where it hits people who are going, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I can see seven things that are wrong with this because these guys don't know my business. They don't know my problems. They don't know my opportunities. So I drag my feet or I unconsciously sabotage it, unconsciously, not consciously. Um, and this happens uh, all the time these days. And there is a solution, and it's the one you said, which is to get more people into it, more data into it, more hearts as well as minds into it from the beginning. And what we've learned is the argument against it was exactly the one you said, that doing this will simply, the number one argument, there were others, it'll slow us down too much. And you're telling me, Cotter, that we have to speed up. <laughs> and now you're showing me something that's going to slow us down. Well, what we discovered is no. If you do it in a very kind of management way of appointing committees and allowing committees all over the place to do things and then having to have committees meeting with committees and the like, it takes forever. But you don't have to do that. You can get a lot of people involved simply by uh, uh, through more informal means uh, and uh, uh, with and and make it clear we have to do this uh, in a way that is timely and fast and smart. But the notion of diverse many is the term we use. Diverse many not only can come up with a better strategy through all the information and creativity that comes with diversity but it can execute the strategy faster because so many people were involved, understand it, believe in it, have some emotional attachment to it, and are willing to uh, run with it. 
you give an example, the tale of two healthcare companies, one that focused on survive and the other one that's focused on thrive, whether they call it that or not, that's what they did. But it was really interesting. I thought that something every change maker, every head of innovation, anybody who lots of CEOs will have experienced is then is negative power from people. So they can be nodding on the outside, but inside vehemently disagreeing with you and drag things back and kill it. And you know, we talk off as you do in the book about the middle management trap, not getting through that layer of rock of magma that often blocks things. But you gave this example that when change initially happens, you get this kind of stall points, you get these points where maybe we didn't hit the quarter, maybe we didn't make it that month. And then those kind of naysayers start popping their head up and kind of going, I told you it wouldn't work. And again, like you do in so many of your works, so many of your books, it's backed up by research, you give us some solutions to this, I can still remember um, being in our whiteboard room at our Cambridge office. And we had a client in and uh, they had made some significant progress, but they were going into a stall and they were being criticized. Uh, the team uh, that was driving this, uh, just the way that you articulated it, you know, wait a minute, you know, the, the, the stock price is not going up, it's flat. Uh, the profitability last quarter. Uh, did not go up as per predictions. Um, uh, this whole process you've created, it seems, seems awfully complex, blah, 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 blah. And they're kind of saying to us, what do we do? And I can remember going up to the whiteboard and doing this diagram for them, saying, let's write down what you've been doing and over here, I'm going to write down these results uh, so far, but I've got a big space in between. I said, let's try to complete the diagram. You know, what you're doing right now, if it's working, what are some early indicators of it working? Forget about the ultimate results we want for a second. Look at early indicators when we wrote those down. And uh, then some indicators after that, then results. So we came back to the early indicators and I said, what does the data look like for these? And those were all going the right direction. And of course the light bulb eventually comes on that uh, it takes time to get those end results. But what you need to pay real attention to is the early indicators. Measure them. Are they going up as predicted by your actions? And if they are, that can give you both the ammunition to shoot down the naysayers, but also it gives you the self-confidence that you're really on the right track. Um, and that meeting ended, I can still remember, uh, with an energized group that was determined now to go back and uh, they did some amazing things over the next couple of years. Absolutely amazing. John, I, I thought about how those, like you go back to the brain science again, you mentioned this earlier on, those small wins are so important. You know, on this show, we've done episodes with the great BJ Fogg, for example, on tiny habits, uh, the Stanford professor. And one of the reasons I did that is this is organizational habit you're trying to create. My son is, uh, he's just 11. And I told him about this, you know, set the bar low enough to achieve, for example, every time he's waiting for his computer to boot up, he'll do a few press ups, and then he'll celebrate those press ups, you know, and it's, it's the exact same thing, these little wins that over time become the norm. And what's often missing, and I'm sure you see this is leadership, you said, firstly, spotting them for themselves, but then sharing that back to the organization. And I often think about that expression that not saying thanks is like buying a gift for somebody, wrapping it and never giving it to them. And this is what happens in organizations. From the time that we first found the importance of these short-term wins, um, at that time, I did not appreciate as much as I do today 
how important it is to celebrate them and communicate that out. A lot of people will say the, the comeback from execs is, it's not that big a deal. You know, people ought to be able to do that. As opposed to, no, actually, if you look at this success, it's not huge, but for the people that did it, it was a big leap and it was important and it means something. And you need lots more of that type of activity going on. If you treat it as not really relevant, you're not going to get lots more of that activity. So celebrate it, communicate it, and you get this virtuous cycle of action, results, celebration, more people are attracted in, the naysayers have less power, which gets you more action, and da, 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 da. And that's how you change mindsets, ultimately. That's how you change habits, and that's how you can change culture. It needs a big shift in, as you talk about, the shift from management to leadership, because this is why oftentimes people go, why do you do shows on this show about storytelling or about empathy or humility? Human skills, communication, for example, that's why, because th those human skills are have never been more important in leadership roles, in any role, really. And that's why we talk about these human skills. I'd love your, your knowledge on this, John. The, the list you just gave are all more associated with leadership than management. And uh, the problem is multifold. I mean, business schools, probably of necessity, focus more on what is teachable and what is uh, hard, if you will, and quantitative. That tends to be more the management stuff. Uh, even if they know that in the long term, the leadership stuff is going to be as or more important for the graduates. Um, and it's also complicated because of an argument that goes on very often that's a bad argument. It's the people who are interested, for example, and are doing what you're doing, talking about communication and empathy, and who implicitly say, you know, that's what's important. All of this managerial stuff, you know, leader, we got to replace managers with leaders. No, you need them both because they serve different purposes for an organization. And the problem is simply we, we don't have enough leadership. So don't put down management. Don't, you know, this is, these guys keep the ship sailing every day. They make the trains run on time. They create the efficiencies which give you money that you can put into innovation. You know, don't put them down. Just grow the other side of the equation and appreciate uh, both. Same with survive and thrive. You need both systems working in yourself and in your people. One of the things we hear about all the time is the failure of digital transformation. So many figures, 75%, 80%, depend on who, which report you read, but it's high. And I'm sure it's even higher on people because people won't admit it that it didn't work. Right. But unfortunately, as, as you say in the book, and as we see, there's less success stories than there should be. And we often point to the same ones all the time because there's so few. But one of the things, and I experienced this firsthand, I worked in digital transformation for eight years, and I was always asked for the latest digital strategy. And I would go, well, I'll give you a digital strategy if you give me a strategy. <laughs> so I was like, we need a, a corporate strategy and digital will enable that strategy. And it constantly got me in trouble and I just couldn't keep my mouth shut. But <laughs> this is a huge problem in organizations still, and I can't believe it's still a huge problem. You see this a lot. Oh, absolutely. Um, when digital is not happening as well as fast or making the contribution that the CEO wants, it's not at all unusual to see that it's operating in its own little kind of world over here, quite independent of the top of the organization, which often doesn't have clarity of 
vision or strategy, or if they do, they haven't connected the two in a clear, explicit way. Because, I mean, digital transformation is one way to help your organize um, leap into the future and um, perform better and thrive. Uh, it isn't a thing into a, by itself. It's a mechanism to help the, the business do better. But to make it do better, it, you have to have some clarity about what is the business and where are your opportunities and where are you trying to drive the overall company. Then you could put the digital piece within that context um, and have it supported. Um, the other big problem for digital, of course, is it it's delegated to the di digital guys, which tend to be a small, small subset of the overall players. And uh, uh, they create stuff that they think makes sense, but doesn't necessarily make it all any sense to the sales guys <laughs> or the finance guys. And then you get fights or you get waste of meetings and slow time and et cetera, et cetera. A good digital strategy has a lot of non-digital people helping um, from as early on as uh, you can. We had a, a, a terrific uh, experience uh, with a public utility outside the United States uh, that was going through a massive digital transformation and was running into all kinds of problems. Um, and uh, some of the executive committee, I'm sure, thought this is madness and we're never going to. And they were highly unionized. And believe it or not, in this day and age, the key union people still thought they were communists. <laughs> Uh, so when we showed up, I, I think at our first meeting over uh, there, not in the United States, uh, they were uh, boycotting us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, guys. Yeah, I'm a friend. Uh, but the, the key thing that the team did was to say, look, this is, this is a organizational transformation that you're really focusing on, not just a digital thing. This isn't just a techie thing. And you need to get as many people in this organization as possible into this somehow, helping with you, believing with in it. And it starts with leadership on the executive committee. And what they achieved over a couple of years is mind-boggling. We have a uh, on our team, uh, a, uh, a man who was very Italian, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful friend of mine. And but he knows Italy very, very well. Uh, but he helps us out. And I can still remember uh, Maurizio saying uh, when we uh, were reviewing the results of that engagement. This, I won't try to do an <laughs> accent, I'll blow it. Uh, he's saying, this is not the way Italy works. It just doesn't. It never, never, never works this way. This is amazing. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, it's the same stuff based on a science, merging science of change of what is possible in any culture. Uh, and what we need for uh, nations and companies everywhere. John, w one of the last things I thought we'd have time for is, is culture itself. And I'm not saying that just because culture is often brought out and we all know the famous Peter Drucker line, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I'm mentioning it because you were one of the pioneers in research into culture, along with your colleague at the time in Harvard Business School, Professor James Hesket. 
I'd love to share your findings because they are now more relevant than ever before. They're more important than ever, ever before. And this goes right back to your book, Corporate Culture and Performance. The first book that really uh, was a bestseller on the topic of corporate culture came out in 1982, um, and it caught my attention. But the, the basic um, theme was that companies that performed well had, quote, strong cultures. Uh, that is to say, lots of people operated with the same norms based on the same implicit uh, shared values about what was good and what was bad. So we tested that out with a, a group of uh, something like, well, 300 companies and then a subgroup of 25 companies. And what we found is, well, there is a positive correlation between strength of culture, how much we all kind of do it the same way, if you will, and performance, but it's weak. And it's because it's possible to have strong, stupid cultures. <laughs> That's very condescending, and I apologize. It's true. <laughs> it's people, true. There's lots of people nodding, listening, John. <laughs> and so we said, okay. Second study is we found the more the culture and the strategy actually kind of fit together, the higher the probability that the strategy would be executed. But the problem with that is in a changing world, you have to change strategies and culture is still back in the old form and it holds you back. And so we finally came up with what you need is an adaptive culture, which had two characteristics. One is people really did value highly uh, all the main constituencies. So customers, employees and investors. They really thought it was their job to serve those people. And second, they believed that when they saw uh, the, those people were not being served well, no matter where they were in the hierarchy, even if they weren't at the top, they had permission to take action to do something about it basically to lead from the middle or even the uh, lower levels of the, the firm. So you had, instead of a few eyeballs paying attention to the key players, customers, employees, investors, you had hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands. And instead of a few people who were charged and held accountable for taking action, you had thousands or tens of thousands. And of course, uh, that made all the difference. That kind of a culture fit nicely into a world that was changing faster, more often, in bigger chunks, etc. We talked about the challenge in finding great exemplars. One of the great exemplars has always been and still is IBM. And I say that you know, uh, uh, because a lot of IBMers listen to the show as well, and they'd be delighted to hear that. But it really does go back to Thomas Watson. You talked about this from an, a merger opportunity, but also the way he empowered people and the way he stayed loyal to them during downturns. This really engendered a really positive culture. Absolutely. And he he was the, in... Uh the uh, Peters and Waterman study that came out under the title In Search of Excellence, he was the kind of poster boy uh, for uh, what leadership excellence was. And if you look at what he focused on, it wasn't just the finances. I mean, he was very much uh, paying attention to giving good rates of return to investors, but his focus on the customers in a way that was obsessive and a focus on, on his employees at a time where nobody did that. Employees were hired and fired uh, back in the 1920s and 1930s with little thought given to uh, the long-term implications of that or the impact on their lives. Uh, not Watson, he did it all. 
And you're right. He created the first global technology company through that. Amazing. Because he stayed loyal, they had built up this knowledge and they'd built up R&D, etc. So when, for example, you mentioned the, a, a big government contract came up, they just got it by a mile because they had everything ready to go. I say that to say, because you studied culture, oftentimes a new leader comes in. So my background is sport, I played sport for a decade, professional sport, and oftentimes a new coach comes in and they're expected to wave a magic wand and all of a sudden change the culture of a team. It's the same thing for an organization. It takes time, and you do recognize this as well. Absolutely. I can still remember somebody showing up at our offices a few years ago saying, the CEO of a well-known European-based major corporation with hundreds of thousands of employees has charged me and my team of people who are about five levels down with changing the culture. I said, oh, really? (laughs) You're going to do this. Okay. What's your time frame? And she says, he's given us one year. And I said, um, have you updated your resume? <laughs> but that doesn't mean you have to be sitting around getting terrible results all during this period while you're changing your culture. Now we're back to short-term wins again. You can say as a The only way it's going to change is you've got to have credibility and you've got to keep people on your side. And one way to do that is to produce certain kinds of business wins um, that will not only help your own internal troops, but keep investors on your side and keep the public on your side too. I'm going to wrap up now. I I have a a nice little idea way to finish the show which is i pulled a quote that i absolutely loved from the book and i'm going to end with that but i wanted to before i do that just where can people find you where can people find cotter inc where can people find the book etc the book which is behind you is this right so the main what is that teal is that the color yeah it's a lovely color it's a lovely color teal for a reason as well and change is the name and um my name starts with a K, not a C. Keep that in mind. <laughs> and um, you can reach me through the company is the easiest way. And, it, and it's just uh, go to our website, cotterinc.com, K-O-T-T-E-R-I-N-C.com. There's lots of material there, uh, free material about what we've learned and uh, some success stories. People uh, seem to find it just useful to roam through that and learn through it, which is terrific. And you can leave notes for me. I actually do answer my email um, and I'd be happy to uh, answer questions or talk to anybody. I'm going to give this quote, but I love you then to close the show with your final message, because you do leave the book with a final message, a greater call to action across the world. Uh, one other question that I haven't asked before, because you're, you've got this beautiful library. Uh, firstly, I'm jealous because it's so well organized <laughs> compared to mine. Uh, mine's organized, by the way, by depth. So they're all flat, but uh, there's no color or anything like that uh, organization. Yours looks really neat. What are you reading at the moment, John? What's uh, what's on your list of books? I'm sure you have several, but what's going on at the moment? I'm reading three books right now. One is about um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, and J.P. Morgan and their relationship back at the turn of the last century. One is about the changing publishing business. And one is uh, one of those uh, kind of lawyer thriller type books. <laughs> great, great. I love the, I love the diversity of that alone, that that uh, range of books. So, um, John, I'm going to finish now with this quote, and I hand it to you to finish today's show. It's been an absolute honor speaking to you. Here we go. Final quote from me, and uh, I'll hand it to you then. The Thrive Channel also has a radar system. 
But instead of looking for threats, it seeks opportunities. When Thrive spots possibilities, an internal mechanism is activated that sends out a different set of chemicals than survive, like oxytocin and vasopressin. In the Thrive response, our energy goes up but does not spike. Thrive is accompanied by emotions like passion and excitement rather than anxiety or anger. Our field of focus does not shrink. It often does the opposite, expanding as curiosity about the opportunity broadens one's field of vision. When a response is not activated to worry about one's own immediate and personal survival, and with positive emotions flowing instead, we are much more open to collaboration, creativity, and innovation. The mind and body search for ways to move toward the opportunity, and as long as we see evidence that we are making progress, our increased energy can be sustained for a remarkably long period of time without feeling burned out. I absolutely love that. I thought that brought together so many of the concepts in the book beautifully. But over to you, John, what's your final message to our audience? The opportunities out there today that are being created by change are vast and underreported. What the news media gives us are the problems and the threats and the ugliness and the downside to the point where we can all become panicked in a survive sense. The reality is change produces as many opportunities as threats and the upside for what is possible uh, over the coming decades is unknown, except that it's very high. And the more that more of us, more of us can be activating the thrive piece of ourselves and our colleagues and our organizations, the more we'll be able to take advantage of those opportunities and create a world where our children and our grandchildren will benefit. Beautiful. Author of Change, How Organizations Achieve Hard to Imagine Results in Uncertain and Volatile Times a legend in the field of change. An absolute honor to speak to you. John Cotter, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Great fun.